This podcast contains explicit content and is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Don't say we didn't warn you. Hey, hey. My name is Madison. I'm Hannah. And you are listening to Who's Knocking? A true crime podcast. Yeah. So here we are with this is uh, part two of the Jeffrey McDonald series. Yep. I think it's going to be a, a, a three-parter probably. I think that sounds right. Sounds right to me. Yeah, I think we'll keep it a three-parter and who knows what the length of the third part will be, but. Yeah, just a nice digestible three parts. Yeah. Um, so please watch part one or listen to part one to catch up if you've just made your way here. I'm not going to really recap it because there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, there's a lot there. But I think maybe we get right into it unless there's anything you want to chat about. Yeah, let's get into it. All right. Here we go. Oops. The Dr. Jeffrey McDonald. Doctor. Dr. Captain Jeffrey McDonald. Although... Technically, he's not a captain, but anymore. He lost that title? Yes. I be- mm, I don't remember. <laughs> anyway, Dr. Captain, Fact whatever. Check us on that one. So, we left off after the Article 32 hearing. Mm-hmm. If you recall, that was the military hearing. And it was at the end of the hearing, it was that there was no evidence to go forward, and they... So it's not like a guilty or not guilty. It's just like, okay, we don't think there's enough evidence, so we're just squashing this. Okay. So after the Article 32 hearing, McDonald was feeling very vindicated. He started doing a lot of press and sending out letters to journalists, asking them to write stories on him and putting together a diary that he hoped would be material for a future book. The diary included his recollection of his family leading up to the murders and how things were going for him after lots of talk about the press. So if he actually committed the murder, that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. He's like, yeah, let me just write a diary about all this. Well, and you can look at it in in any which way. And again, sorry, just for anybody who doesn't know, I'm still kind of going through fatal vision. So this is Joe McGinnis's recollection. And this is all Joe saying this about Jeffrey. Okay. So I think you could really look at this in a number of ways. You could say like, oh, he was going to the press and he was like doing all this stuff. Or if you're more um, sympathetic to him, you could say press was reaching out to him and everybody like you could also think if somebody was truly innocent and, you know, he did in a sense win the Article 32 hearing. But even so, I think there's still a lot of people who did think he was guilty. Like, he didn't prove his innocence. Yeah. Um, And also, if he was innocent, then he kind of really was railroaded. So, like, there's a lot of things that you might want to get to the press to get out there that you are innocent. Yeah, fair enough. So, you really, in all fairness, I think you could look at it in either way. Yeah. Either could be true. I honestly don't know if he did it or not. I'm undecided at this point. Nobody knows. I mean, nobody knows, yeah, but I don't have an opinion either way. But just thinking if he did do it and he's here doing all this stuff to write a book about how he's innocent is kind of questionable. Yeah, 
And it did seem like it was, sorry, I was really cold and now I'm really hot. But it did seem like he was putting together all this material for a book that he wanted to put out. So I will say that it was, it was him leading the book. Whereas the press, I think was a little bit of him, a little bit of his lawyer um, and a little bit of like people's own curiosity. Yeah. We're all curious. So soon after, Jeffrey also moved to California. He got a new job at a hospital and started dating other women and bought himself a fancy boat and a sports car. What the hell? Your wife and kids just died. Yeah. So this was another thing that people did not like. And um, especially um, Freddie and Mildred Kassab, they couldn't believe that he would move to another place where he couldn't visit their graves every day. Or, you know, not necessarily every day, but like they, they just could not, they did not like that. It's weird. The new boat and the dating women right away is a little bit like. But again, his he was saying that he wanted to not get over it, but to like move on, move on with his life. And and it was re- obvious it's it must be very hard to move on um, in the same place, in the same job where like literally he was when he found out he was a suspect, he was in the cafeteria at the hospital yeah and like it was on the tv and everyone just looked at him so so i don't know if that were me and i was innocent i wouldn't want to stick around yeah i don't know and it's it's really hard because at the same time if i were freddie and mildred i'd be like what the hell yeah your family is here dead in the ground and you're just living it up and what is not necessarily suspicious but like okay bro is like getting is like dating and We'll get more into yeah, that. Yeah, dating right away, getting about kind of suspicious. All right, go on. So at this point, Freddie was still really convinced of Jeffrey's innocence. And Freddie was Freddie was a very extreme person. So like when he was really rooting for Jeffrey, like he was there constantly in the media, constantly being like, this man is innocent. He's our son-in-law. We love him, blah, blah, blah. Like his biggest um, supporter. So he was still on his side. But he really wanted to know the truth. He wanted to find the people responsible. He thought or cared of literally nothing else. In Fatal Vision, Freddy is portrayed as one of the protag- one of the protagonists, one of the good guys, and he's you know just trying to get justice for his daughter and his granddaughters, which to me seems completely reasonable. Yeah. I feel like if, if it were me, I'd I'd hope I'd be going super hard. Yeah, you'd want to know what happened at least. Yeah, and you'd want to be there advocating, especially because you're literally getting no answers. Um, like there's some like Mildred just like completely um, like inverted in on herself. Like so she sad. just stayed home. She saw nobody. She just baked and baked and baked and baked, never ate any of it. But like mm-hmm. her kitchen was piled with cakes and cookies and stuff because she just wanted to do shit. Yeah. Coping mechanism. And then she just started planting roses everywhere. So they were just like overgrown with roses. You could tell like she just had to do something quietly with nobody. Whereas Freddie was like out there doing his darndest to do something Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because as i said in fatal vision he's like you know kind of a hero but then in a lot of my other research people who were more on jeffrey's side like painted him as like like an extremist like in a negative way um and i just think that's kind of not fair even if jeffrey is innocent it's like that's his family yeah he's trying to figure out what happened yeah i like Dude, he he could do a lot of things. Like 
up until like causing violence to somebody else where it's like that's your family and you're going to do right by your family. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going <laughs> to – every time I do a podcast, I like get out of breath. Anyway, I'll try not to do that. Um. Yeah, so it's it seemed like Freddie was a pretty polarizing character in this whole thing. And he was aggressive and severe, but, you know, I just – I couldn't blame him for that. Freddie then began to ask McDonald for the transcript, the transcript of the Article 32 hearing. And Jeffrey, because I don't remember if I told you, but I'm pretty sure I did, but there was no media allowed in the Article 32 hearing. The only person who was allowed in that hearing was Jeffrey's mother. Okay. So they didn't get to see it. Nobody did. Um, So Freddie really wanted the transcript. Jeffrey didn't want to give it to him. In letters between Freddie and Jeffrey, Freddie, uh, no, Jeffrey mostly blames Bernie and uh, his lawyer and says that he won't allow him to give it over and all this stuff. Okay. He just makes up a lot of excuses. Yeah, easy excuse. Yeah. So then the Kitsab started getting a little bit more suspicious, especially or in particular after this really big in-depth interview was published in Newsday. Mm-hmm. In that interview, Jeffrey recounted everything and it was the first time Freddie and Mildred got any sort of details about what exactly happened. That's fucked. Which is shocking that they it took until then. Yeah. And on top of being really shocked by the details, they found it really odd that Jeff had had like never been able to talk to them about it, but then could just talk to a total stranger about it. Yeah. Which again, like I think in some ways it's probably easier to talk to a stranger about it than to like tell the parents. Yeah. To me, that's, you know, neither here nor there. But at this point, Freddie began to record all of his telephone calls regarding the murders, including all of his phone calls with Jeffrey. Okay. So it's very interesting because all the, we have all those recordings and uh, transcripts of them. So the, the Kassabs were very angered when the FBI didn't immediately step in after the conclusion of the 32 hearing. In their minds, they could now rule out Jeff and move on to new, spus- new suspects and find the people who were responsible, but that didn't happen. And now I think that a lot of the reason why it didn't happen was that there was so much incompetence. Yeah. So, like, they really didn't want to, like, look inwards on themselves. Oh. Um, and that kind of – we get into a little bit more of that later. But anyway, there was there was a bunch of back and forth again about the transcript of Freddie trying to get the transcript and Jeffrey agreeing and then calling back later and saying, oh, no, we can't because such and such and such. Jeffrey and Freddie maintained a relationship mostly over the phone. But now that Jeff had moved to the West Coast, um, Jeff gave Freddie the impression that he was looking into all these people and that he had some Green Beret buddies that were doing their own investigation to find these like hippie killers. And uh, so it was like Jeffrey was going back and forth to Fayetteville to do these investigations. And Freddie was like really keen on this. They had a lot of like in-depth conversations about like, oh, I like uh, Jeffrey would say like, I went to this bar and like we were like doing intel on these guys that we think are suspects or whatever. And like this really got Freddie peaked like almost I think too much for Jeff because he's like literally super intent on trying to find the people who did this. Right. Whereas I think Jeffrey was kind of... Kind of sounds like he's bullshitting a little bit. Trying to make Freddie feel like he's doing something. Yeah, yeah. Or just at this bar doing intel. Like, or are you just at the bar drinking with your Green Beret buddies? Yeah, because Jeff began getting annoyed and found that Freddie was being like borderline fanatical. 
So his daughter and grandkids died. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, I agree. So in November, Jeffrey called Freddie and told him that he had some news. He said, quote, one down, three to go, end quote. The whole call was pretty cryptic from both ends because both of them were worried about wiretapping, but it was made clear during that call and in preceding conversations that Jeffrey and some of his Greenberry buddies had managed to track down one of the killers, one of the two white males, and kill him. They just vigilante murdered this guy? That's what Jeff told Freddie. Okay. So then Jeffrey visited the Kassabs shortly after the killing, and Mildred tried to question him about it. She was super conflicted because she was like, well, if he was one of the killers, why, like, wouldn't we want to use him to find the other ones? Like, yeah, and bring it's, him to justice. Yeah, it's like, obviously, she was, she was conflicted because she was, like, happy that this person was dead. But she was like, this just doesn't make sense if you want to find it, all of them. Yeah. And when she pressed Jeff further, he, or she said that he was really evasive and awkward and, like, couldn't even look her in the eyes. Suspicious. So, yeah. In December... Freddie, wanting to further investigate, decided to go to Washington with 500 copies of an 11-page letter pleading for justice. He spent four days hand-delivering his letters to everyone he could in the House and Senate office buildings. When he returned home, he caught Jeffrey's appearance on a late-night talk show called The Dick Cavett Show. Jeff's performance enraged Freddie. He had been giving, given a platform to reach millions of people, constituents of the very political figures that Freddie had been hounding for days, but Jeff spent the whole talk show talking about himself, how everything had affected him, and getting laughs out of the audience. He also greatly exaggerated his injuries that he had that night. Why? So you can see footage, and we can include some footage of the um, talk show. I'd be interested to see it. Uh, I have some, but it's on my computer. Um, Is it on YouTube, or you have it saved? It's on, there's a little bit on YouTube. I put together some clips from another series, which I will get into, based off Errol Morris's book. And it, he's, it's very odd. Yeah. The way he it acts. It seems weird. And I'm always so skeptical or I'm so um, weary about judging somebody's affect or body language or how they are after. But, it like it takes, I guess Dick Cavett, Cavett or whatever, to be like. But there's still people out there. Like there's still like for him to be like, yeah, like I really want to catch the people. Like he mostly talks about how wronged he was the entire time. Yeah. Where like if you're sad that your wife and two baby daughters were murdered, I would be on a talk show with their pictures. Yeah. Pleading with people well, to find their it. killer. He doesn't seem like he cares that much. He did not at all. Like he was there and he was like getting laughs from the audience. He was like a he he did seem like really like, yeah, well, like this happened and blah blah blah. And he, like there's one part where he's like or he's explaining what happened the night of and he's like, Yeah, my wife came home and we were watching a late night talk show and everyone's like, oh so weird. Yeah. Um, so okay, we'll put the clips up. Yeah, and and needless to say, I think most people in Jeffrey's life saw it and were like, what the hell? Yeah. But no one was more upset than Freddie. Of course. Um so this is when Freddie 
started pushing way harder to get a copy of the Article 32 transcripts. Mm -hmm. So Freddie called Jeffrey to tell him how he felt about the Dick Cavett show appearance and to further insist on seeing the transcript. And now that Jeffrey was completely out of the military, like he'd been officially discharged and everything had wrapped up, um, there was not really much to object to about giving over the transcript. So he had his mother, Jeffrey had his mother deliver the transcripts to the cassettes. And they were long. It's like, I think it's something like something like 11 or 13, like full manila envelopes of transcript. So that was in December. So the Kassab spent their entire Christmas going over the transcripts with a fine tooth comb. It was very large, uh, very long, it's 13 manila envelopes, and very enlightening. And of course, it was extremely difficult for them. They were only just now learning all the horrifying details, reading all the excerpts from the lawyers and witnesses, talking about how their babies were found. And on top of that, learning about Jeffrey's affairs. For Mildred, the whole thing was very emotional. And Joe describes in the book, just she just cried through the whole thing. Like the only time she paused was to wipe her tears or like if she couldn't see because her eyes were just stinging so badly. Oh. I just, it sounded horrible. Yeah. But Freddie began to take very diligent notes and he felt that he was seeing some major inconsistencies. Interesting. So after reading through everything and taking all of his notes, he took a trip to 544 Castle Drive with Peter Kearns and... Colonel Jack Pruitt, who were the some of the investigators, some of the military investigators, um, or so sorry, they were the new investigators on the case. And Freddie wanted to test out some theories and see if some of the things that Jeffrey was claiming made sense to him. And you know, my own note. Let's just remember, Freddie was not a trained investigator mm -hmm. or a forensic ana analyst or anything. But pretty much neither were the people who actually <laughs> yeah were doing yeah jobs. <laughs> couldn't couldn't really say this yeah that for them either. Um, but that trip to 544 Castle Drive is what absolutely convinced Freddie that Jeffrey was guilty. Really? Yes. Um, he did not say this to McDonald at the time, but that's when he shifted his focus. And it took a while. It took a few months, but eventually he was able to convince Mildred of the same thing. Okay. What convinced him? What convinced Freddie? Yeah. Um, so I I didn't write down like exactly what it was, but basically he went in there and like, so he, he would, will eventually agree with like the prosecution's theory. So like he went in there and he like, he lied down on the couch, like Jeffrey would have lied down yep. on the couch. And like, he like went through the motions of like everything that Jeffrey claimed that's, happened. Yeah, that's right. And he just didn't think that it was possible. Now, what I had said before and what I will continue to say is like, I think it's very plausible. Like Jeff misremembered because he was in shock. Yes. And I think anybody in any situation. It's very easy to misremember details for it's, sure. It's very easy to misremember and not even just misremember, but misremember, but think that you remembered. Sure. Yeah. Like that you think that's, that's the true series of events, but it's not. Yeah. I think we went into that in the last episode, like this fucking TV, like I came here and like, yes, and then, yeah. you know, spent hours here and then was like, Aiden, you don't have a TV, right? Giant TV right behind the audience. Anyway, reasonable still, I think. In January of 1971, Colonel Jack Pruitt, and he is the CID Director of Internal Affairs. And a warrant officer, Peter Kearns, Peter Kearns, who I said before, he's a warrant officer, along with eight other officers, they were assigned to the case. In February of 1971, Pruitt and Kearns 
came to Long Island to visit with Freddie and let him know about their new investigation and that Jeffrey would remain a suspect. So also, um, Freddie was the way he was, and he was really badgering all of the investigators. And like when they took him to go see 544 Castle Drive, pretty much they they were looking at him, they're like, okay, he's going to be a problem if he's not on our side. So we're going to take him there and let him do all of his little investigations, let him do his own thing so that he'll be on our side. Because if he's not on our side, he's just going to be a pain in our ass. And I think they all ended up having the same mindset anyway, especially after he went there and did all his little tests. Yeah. But that was their, like, they wouldn't just let anyone come and do their own tests on their crime scene, you know? It's not normal. So the detectives interviewed Jeffrey a few times and again asked him to take a polygraph. He declined. And after two interviews at the advice of counsel, he refused to cooperate at all anymore. I mean, it's another thing, like... Yes, like, if you... Even if you are innocent, you could be concerned that they might implicate you. Yes. And and if I if I was Jeffrey enough, I was innocent, I would probably refuse to take a polygraph, and I would probably listen to my lawyer if I trusted them. Yeah. And if my lawyer said to not cooperate, I would not cooperate. Yeah, fair. And um, also, polygraphs can't be used, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. We so. all... We discuss polygraphs, and I stick to my original thought on them i would it's not a good idea to take them Mm -hmm. the investigation also focused a lot on helena's okay sorry her last name stokely is it stokely that's how that's the pronunciation that i've seen now and i think the entire last episode i called her stoically yeah yeah, that's what i've called her too yeah it just looks like it's stoically but it's stokely okay what did i just say stokely yeah that's what we're gonna go with Okay. okay so at this point it was still very unclear to everyone whether Helena was just a weirdo hippie who claimed to be involved or if she actually was. Such a mystery. She was doing a lot of drugs. She was constantly in and out of the hospital. And it was just, like she was a mess. She doesn't seem like the most reliable source. Probably. She's the least reliable <laughs> witness, even if she is a witness. Like, she's just so crazy that she could like maybe she's the most confusing character in this whole story my whole like she is it come to me it comes down to her yeah because there's it's i just can't tell either way and i think there's like and then she passed away yeah i think there's like a 50 percent chance she was there 50 percent i have no idea because there's so much make see making it seem like she's there and then a lot that doesn't make it seem like she was there yeah. But we can we can decide later. Okay. So Prude and Kearns looked very extensively into her background. She seemed to be a very sad and lost person, addicted to drugs, suffering from low self-esteem. They interviewed her many times and polygraphed her. I believe she took more than one polygraph, but by the end of it, she was so inconsistent. One minute she said she was there, the next she wasn't. The detectives took this to mean that she was an unreliable witness. The polygraph examiner said that he could determine that at least at some points he could say she believed that she was there. But that doesn't mean that she was there. Crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, there was all this back and forth with her too because she was constantly asking to be um, given immunity. And like they wouldn't give it to her. But it's like that makes you makes her seem like she really has something. Yeah. Why would she need immunity? 
because she thought she was going to be implicated. Yeah. So it's just, it just adds to the mess. She made a number of incriminating statements claiming to have been at the scene of the crime and had seen what happened, but also couldn't remember anything. And her story changed constantly. She seemed like the type of person who had a lot of like self-esteem problems um, and ultimately would try to please people in life for validation, which oh. made her a very suggestible person. Yeah. She had actually been a drug informant for the police for a while. And she developed a friendly relationship with one of the officers, and his name was Prince Beasley. The investigators used this relationship to gather hair and fingerprint samples from Helena, but they didn't match any of the samples that they had. Okay. So, so they had asked her for um, samples. Mm -hmm. She refused. And it was like him going out with her for like a coffee or something right. where he just like took it or took like a cup or whatever yeah, to get her it. DNA. But so that's interesting if none of her DNA matched what they had. No, but they had so much stuff that wasn't tested. Right. It wasn't until like you will see like later in appeals, like 20 years later, they tested some stuff. But there's so Crazy. much that wasn't tested. The detectives also decided that William Posey, so that's the guy who first implicated her in the Article 32 hearing. Okay. They um they it was their belief that his story began to fall apart upon further investigation. A polygraph examination determined that he had not been truthful at the Article 32 hearing. Mm. He had admitted that he had not seen her get out of the vehicle that night and that uh, he – even though he said he had and that he'd merely seen her walking to her apartment. Okay. He was no longer sure of the make and model of the car. At the hearing, he claimed it was a Mustang. Yeah. He was no longer sure that he had the day correct. It wasn't until a week later after the murders that he even started thinking that Helena could have been involved. And it all came together for him because Helena had told him that she was on drugs that night and couldn't remember what she did. So these these are the things that they felt made him not truthful at the Article 32 hearing. Interesting. Which I think that's a little bit suspect because one of the main things, the, the two main things at the top are that he did not see her like physically get out of it. So they took that as being like he lied where it's like, okay, but you heard a car come home. You looked out the window and you saw her walking. Do we not infer that she came from the car? Right. Um, and that the make and model of the car were wrong. But like it was like there was two cars apparently within – like there was a couple – Helen lived in, in an apartment where there was a couple of apartments and they all kind of lived together commune style and they shared two cars. Okay. And um, – so, like, he said the car that she got out of was a Mustang and it was, like, the other car. Yeah. So, to me, that's also, like, was he lying or did he just, like, have, like, a regular human memory and, like, yeah. said what he thought he saw? To me, that doesn't mean that he was, like, lying maliciously. Agreed. And they kind of made it seem like they, – they used those, like, little inconsistencies to be, like, he's a liar. We shouldn't believe anything he says. But why did they want to make him a liar? Because – they didn't – they wanted Jeffrey to be the person who was the murderer. Okay. And he was the one who implicated Helena. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense, though. So after comparing the forensics and talking to all the people that she mentioned and ruling them all out systematically, they decided to rule Helena out as a suspect. And this led them back to Jeffrey. Okay. Just rule her out. Sorry. I'm <laughs> scraping the arm there. 
So Kearns and Pruitt began zoning back in on Jeffrey's life. The McDonald's had portrayed uh, had been portrayed as a very loving, happy family. Jeff as the all-American guy, a fantastic doctor, a wonderful husband, and a great father. But the investigators began to dig up a lot of affairs. Oh, God. A lot of affairs. Let's get into it. So Jeffrey traveled a lot for work. And mm-hmm. it seemed like on many of those trips, he would not only have one-night stands with women, but he would also spend time with them, like essentially date them. More than one of the the women had been ready to just come back and start a new life with him. What the hell? Yeah. Although Jeffrey never seemed to lie about the fact that he was married to these women and that he had kids, he talked openly with most of the women that he dated. But he never talked about this to Colette. And I was like, maybe, I don't know, like, what the 70s were like. Like, to me, that's, like, rotten, horrific behavior. Yeah. I don't know, like what things were like at the time absolutely not um but this was definitely way more extensive than he had said at the article 32 hearing where he said like he like maybe slept with like two women yeah in his marriage he it was a lot yeah um and even some of them had said like um that they're like, yeah, he seemed like a really nice guy. And, like, I heard him on the phone with his wife, like, saying – and she, he was, like, super nice to her and stuff. And it's like, lady. He's not a nice guy. He's cheating on her. What is wrong with you? Yeah. There was another girl. So he had a high school girlfriend named Penny Well. So if you remember, he went out with Colette in high school. Like, they started dating right in high school. And they broke up. She, Colette broke up with him. Mm-hmm. Started dating another guy. So he started dating this girl named Penny Wells. And as I said, in this book, in Fatal Vision – uh, like the beginning third of the book or so, every other chapter is a, it was like a recording that Jeffrey had made from when he was in prison. Okay. And he's like talking about his life. And like he talks about Penny extensively and about like how their relationship was like so sexual and so physical. And like he didn't really like love her the way he loved Colette, but like they had like such intense sexual chemistry and blah, 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 blah. Okay. And I th- I do think that Joe and choose like picked and chose recordings that made jeffrey look like very promiscuous and like he just like talked so much about sex like i don't know how much recording like what, what percentage yeah. of the recordings those were or whatever but there's all this alleged um stuff about how after he was with Colette, um, like, after him and Penny broke up and he was back with Colette, like, he had, like, tried to see Penny again. And, like, she alleged that, like, he met her at a train station one time when he was supposed to be out working and that he, he had left her some lingerie on her windshield and, like, tried to get with her and stuff. And she actually ended up dating Jeffrey's brother at one point. Weird. And there was a party like a Christmas party that she was at and Colette was at. And like there was all this, they kept every, they kept trying to ask his brother when he was on the grand jury. I don't know if we got to the grand, no, we'll get to the grand jury, but the, the uh, testimony with his brother is hilarious because his brother is like so annoying. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Penny Wells was another one of these people that he was allegedly having an affair with. He denies, she says that he was trying to have an affair with her. I think she, Pretty much said that she didn't want to. Okay, because I she read did the Errol Morris book, and I don't think he mentioned a single thing about any affairs in that book. 
He mentioned way less. Okay, there was some mention. I believe there was a bit of mention, but like he really downplayed it. Yeah. Errol Morris really was, downplayed the it affairs. Was very downplayed. Joe McGinnis really played them up. Okay, so it's maybe maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. We don't know. I think or maybe you're leaning more towards believing Joe. Yeah. And I don't think Errol Morris didn't deny it. He just didn't He didn't really talk about it. No. No. A little bit, but not not a lot. Okay. So Jeff, another so here's another thing. That's not an affair, but it's shady. Jeff had recently begun working out with the military boxing team. Okay. He'd been spending time, like, not – he's not on the team, but, like, he was just working out with them. Mm-hmm. He w- he was just started working out in the same gym that they were working out and, like, got really friendly with them. And as he got to know them, the coach asked Jeff if he would be their team doctor. Okay. And Jeffrey agreed. So this is yet another extracurricular for Jeff. Another reason to spend time away from his family. Then, on the day of the murders, he had actually come home that night to tell Colette that he would be joining the military boxing team on a trip to Russia as their team physician. Um, Going to Russia at this time would mean that he was not reachable at all. And the trip would be a multi-month trip, and it would mean missing the birth of their son. And this was something that... Uh, he did not have to do. It was super voluntary. On top of that, Colette had had two very difficult pregnancies and births. I don't know what exactly it was that caused them to be so difficult, but some extra issue or whatever. And he was just going to leave her there with the kids all by herself to just do that. Yeah, what the hell? Turns out, according to the coach, there was no Russia trip. What the hell? There was no trip planned for the teams besides a possibility of going to the Nationals in New Jersey at some point. And not for months. So what was he going to do for months? That's the question. Weird. The detectives theorized that Jeffrey made the whole thing up so that he could spend time with another woman. Oh, yeah, probably. And, But it's one thing to go do that, to like make something up and tell your wife so that you could go spend time with another woman. Before, like, during the birth of yeah, your son? Yeah, She's about to have a, his baby. Are you nuts? Very I would be livid. Yeah. To me, that is, like, grounds for divorce. Like, that, that big of a lie. Basically being like, I'm going to go somewhere for, like, let's call it three months. You will not be able to call me. And good luck delivering the child that when you had complications in the past. See ya. Like, can you imagine? Yeah, what the fuck? So... Pruitt and Kearns learned of another of Jeffrey's lovers, a woman by the name of Bonnie Wood, who claimed to have started a sexual relationship with Jeffrey while he was confined to the bachelor's officer's quarters during the Article 32 hearing. Okay. So literally right after. Right after your wife died. Yeah. And this relationship was a violation of the terms of his restriction. It wasn't illegal, but like, dude. Yeah. Read the room. He... Literally was going on trial, like, and it's an Article Thirty Two, so it's not trial, trial. But still, and he's sleeping with this woman, and he denied it. But she's like, "What do you mean? Like, we had a literal relationship. Like, I wanted to like date him." <laughs> questionable taste. Yeah, exactly. Well, all the women in the story have very questionable taste, and there are a lot of them. At this point, Jeffrey was no longer speaking with the Kasabs. They were convinced of his guilt. Freddie had spent a number of years speaking with anyone he could within the government, the FBI, etc., to take on the case. The case kept getting bumped from one desk to another. Most people thinking that 
it did have merit, but they didn't want to go against the army ruling or they didn't think they had enough evidence. Finally, through Freddie's continued persistence, the case landed on the desk of Victor Warhide, a 62-year-old Justice Department attorney. Within the department, Warhide was responsible directly to the general attorney, and the uh, attorney general gave Victor absolute authority to determine if the case was worthy of prosecution. And after going over everything, Victor was more than convinced of Jeffrey McDonald's guilt. Shit. And another thing I will say on this whole Jeffrey McDonald's guilt and the Kassabs, the Kassabs were convinced of his guilt, and they, they, um, they wanted to convince Jeffrey's mother of this. They had her over for dinner one night, or I think it was just drinks. I don't think they ate. And Freddie went through everything point by point of why he thought Jeffrey was guilty. And they said that she just sat there the entire time drinking her drink and saying nothing. She left without a word. Then the next day they went to the gravesite and they found a note. I, I believe it was a note. It was something, but I'm pretty sure it was a note from Dorothy, Jeffrey's mother, mm -hmm. and just like saying goodbye to the three of them, Colette and the kids. And then she moved out west with Jeffrey and never spoke to them again. So she kind of picked Jeffrey's side. She picked Jeffrey's side, but I think... But she felt bad, obviously. She happened. definitely felt bad, and I think that... I don't know. I think there, there exists a possibility that she was convinced by at least some of their arguments. Yeah. But she just didn't want to, like, follow through. It's her son. Yeah. I mean, what do you do? It's your son. So that was that. Then Victor began with a grand jury. So unlike the Article two, uh, Article 32 hearing, and unlike a regular trial, a grand jury uh, is set up like this. The only people present are the jury, a judge, the prosecutor, in this case, Victor, and his team, and whatever witness is testifying. Jeffrey could not even have his lawyers present. Okay. So the grand jury is by far the biggest section of fatal vision. The transcripts of questioning most of the witnesses and the multiple psychiatrists and everything that is like half the book okay jeffrey was the first to testify victor got him to go through everything in excruciating detail that way afterwards he could bring in a series of witnesses that would just go against everything jeffrey's entire family testified in a very predictable manner uh so his brother was hilarious uh he, he he was like Jody Arias on the stand. Oh, okay. Like he just was <laughs> so uncooperative and it was just like, just be an adult. Like he was just so childish. And like, I get that you think your brother's innocent and everything, but like he was so annoying. <laughs> anyway. Is because, this the brother that had like the schizophrenic break? Just yes. He definitely has, you know, mental health issues, but like. Yeah, don't we all? Yeah. He was being super annoying. <laughs> anyway. Um, the Kassabs as well and there was a bunch of psychiatrists and the psychiatrists went into a lot of detail there was a lot that they had to say but I don't know how much value I put in the psychological evaluations personally most of them spoke with Jeffrey for a very short amount of time like relative to like a good psychiatrist yeah they're not really like studying him yeah it was like a few days at okay. most some of them even less um, and all of them pretty much came to the same conclusion. Uh, they didn't think that he was the type of person who would have done something like this, but it's possible. And it's like, 
okay, you could say that about literally everyone. Like yeah, everybody, I think everybody has the, like everybody, like there is some situation where they will like defend themselves yeah. or come to a break or yeah. whatever. It's like dogs. Every dog could bite. Yeah, but it's like, okay, like, yeah, everybody has arms and can use them. Yeah, it's just what extreme circumstance would it take for them to do it? Exactly. And so that to me is like kind of a useless statement. None of them thought that he was suffering from any sort of psychosis or any mental disorder of any kind. It doesn't seem like it. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. The general consensus among them was that McDonald was someone who cared a lot about what people thought about him. And it was important for him to feel that he was a high status man, which is why he chose to be a surgeon and also why he had so many affairs. It wasn't necessarily because he was unhappy with his marriage, more that he needed the approval of others to validate his own sense of masculinity. He was very good at being a likable person. He was outgoing and nice and at least appeared to really care for people, and it was likely that he did, and he was a great father. Was he? Maybe. I mean, not if he killed his children. Yeah, that pretty much takes <laughs> like, him out of the running. For yeah. But up until then, he, like, he was... Yeah, he got them a pony. He was liked. He got them a pony. Sounds like a good dad. <sighs> it's difficult to say. In my very humble opinion, Jeffrey McDonald was an asshole. <laughs> he cheated on his wife many times and on work trips where he was specifically portraying himself to be selflessly working hard and sacrificing for his family. Wow. I believe that he volunteered to take a lot more trips than were actually necessary and yeah. made it seem to collect like they were uh, more important than they were. And he did this knowing that he would get to spend time away from his family and with many other women. This was while Colette was home with two kids by herself, at times pregnant, and, like, I've been there. It's tough. Not that I've been, like, left on my own, but, like, I've been there to be pregnant and have two children with a husband and with, like, a lot of help. And yeah. at that, it's fucking it's still hard. hard. Yeah. And a lot of these times, as we talked about before, they'd only just gotten to the point where Jeffrey was, like, a full doctor and, like, actually making money. And even still, they were living in, like, a pretty small place on right. the like military barracks or whatever yeah. it's called. So like a lot of this time that Colette spent at home by herself with the two kids were like in less than ideal living situations with very little money. Like it's, I think he was a huge asshole. He kind of sounds like it. He is the worst. I don't like him at all. Does it mean he's guilty? That does not mean he's guilty. Yeah. But I don't like the man. And it kind of suggests that maybe he wanted to get rid of his wife eventually. I, I think he definitely has a motive. Absolutely. But even does having a motive make you guilty? Not necessarily. This is not particularly surprising behavior, what I just said. that Jeffrey and Colette had had their first baby when they were both 20, yeah, as I said. that was early. They both missed out on their young 20s and having time to do their own things. I bet that Jeff was craving being young and free and something this like this was something that he felt he missed out on, especially at this point. Right now, he was only 26. So he's 26. He's now a doctor. He now has money. Yeah. He has made it to the point where he is now like the at the like peak um like he's like an eligible man. Yes, he's like at his peak 
like he's at, like he's reached his peak. Yeah, this is like the like best he will ever yeah. be dating wise. And Colette is like now pregnant with a third child. She's yeah. like, you know, not probably he I can only assume he's like like fuck, like this is what I settled for. Right. And he's working constantly and you know, that's my take. Um and I think that if in his mind, he was thinking, you know, if I didn't have a family, I'd be living it up and I'd be an absolute prize to any woman. Um, and I go on to say, like, you know, it's monstrous behavior and it's definitely motive, but I don't know that that proves he did it. So the new forensics that had come out in the grand jury, mm -hmm. uh, they were like the main thing paul stromba the chief of chemistry at the fbi laboratory took the stand some of his major finds were as follows the pajama top which jeffrey initially said he was attacked in and which he later laid over top of colette was found to have 48 puncture holes from the ice pick Upon analysis, the FBI concluded that the stabs were made while the person wearing the top was stationary. They could tell this due to the shape and consistency of the holes. They also determined that the holes matched up to the stab wounds found on Colette, Colette if folded a very specific way, implying that the pajama top was placed on her before and during the time that she was stabbed with the ice pick. And like while she was dead already, it seems like if she was stationary... That's well, yes, and I think um, either dead or like you know, almost immobilized. Dead. Yeah. The forty-eight holes in the shirt, when folded, matched up to Colette's twenty-one ice pick stabs. Also, her blood was on the top before it was torn. They decided, and I can't figure out how they figured this out, but that's their claim. McDonald had originally stated that the pajama top had been torn during the attack on him by the assailants, and then he placed it on Colette. So in his uh, in his version of events, he's like moving around. Basically, he has it between his hands, and it's like fending them off with it. Okay. And they're stabbing at it. Uh, which doesn't really make sense. No. Um, but again... It would be pretty easy to like just aim your knife somewhere else. Yes. If you're stabbing. They determined that all the cuts in the garments, with the exception of the blue pajama top, had been made with the old hickory knife and not the Geneva knife, which those are the names of the knives, like the names on the knives, if right. we mentioned that in the first episode. McDonald had originally claimed that it was the Geneva knife that he had pulled out of Colette's chest. So that was wrong. They also found that some of the stains on the Hilton bath mat that was found on Colette match the old hickory knife and the ice pick this indicated that those weapons were either laid or wiped on the mat while they were full of blood so presumably post-attack they also discovered that some of the blood stains on the crumpled up sheet found in the master bedroom matched the sleeves of colette's pajama top and others had been made by a pair of hands and a bare left shoulder these all being implements used to transfer blood colette's blood onto the sheet the implication here being that somebody who was full of Colette's blood covered or wrapped her in the sheet and carried her to the master bedroom where she was eventually found. Like Jeff maybe carried her to the master bedroom? Yes. I think he'd remember carrying her, right? Uh, that's the implication, yes. Yeah. So they're implying that he did that and he says he didn't do that. Yeah. 
There were multiple instances where blood found did not match up with Jeffrey's story. So the bloody footprint, for example, was made from somebody stepping in a huge pool of blood and, uh, and then going out, leading to like going out of the room. The indication here being that Colette was attacked in Kristen's room, bled profusely onto a sheet because it was like, it had to have been like a literal pool of blood. Um, uh, Then someone had picked up Colette and stepped in the blood pool and then onto the floor, making the print on the way out of the room. The bloody footprint also, they claim, was made while the person who made the footprint was carrying something very heavy. Yes. So that implication being that he was carrying Colette. There was also an inconsistency in the urine stain, the one on the bed. It had always been said that it was Kristen who was the one who wet the bed, but they said that the urine seemed to match Kimberly. Okay. So Jeffrey was brought back up to the stand and confronted with all the new forensics. He did not appreciate this at all. Well, see, now you think he's guilty. Yeah, because he's like an asshole now. During the recess, he spoke to his lawyers, and they came up with a very lengthy statement, which he read out loud to the court. He went through most of the evidence and tried to refute it, mostly by pointing out the previous incompetence of the state. Which is fair. When dealing with the crime scene, although it's not the state, it's the military police. Um... And uh, he talked a lot about Freddie and his obsession with the case and tried to really put it on him, saying that Freddie had all the information he wanted from the 32 hearing and he had access to the lawyers and had never asked Jeff to tell him about the events on February 17th. So, like, we, as Freddie said, like, the opposite of all that. He went on to say that he was just trying to move on with his life and everyone is trying to make it seem like he doesn't care about his family, which in his opinion could not be further from the truth. And he ended it with this quote, I didn't kill Colette and I didn't kill Kimmy and I didn't kill Christy. And I, and I didn't move Colette and I didn't move Kimmy and I didn't move Christy. And I gave them mouth to mouth breathing and I love them and I love them now. And you can shove all your fucking evidence right up your ass. End quote. Alrighty then. (laughs) So, Again, they questioned him in the beginning, then they questioned everybody else to refute him, mm-hmm. and then they took all the evidence and started questioning him about it, and then he got super mad, and when he came and refuted it, he was pissed. Yeah. Which I get, especially if you are innocent, he I'd be innocent, super yeah. pissed. But even, like, if you are guilty, <laughs> you're going to be pissed, which he was. Three days after, the jury – god damn, sorry, I'm so sorry, I keep hitting my mic, it's really annoying – uh, the jury returned with an indictment charging Jeffrey McDonald with three counts of murder. Shit. Okay. One day in 19... 19- so he was indicted, so there was a trial planned. Okay. And it, it you know, it took a, a long time to actually get to that trial. But on one day in 1975, Victor Warhide was walking to the store to purchase a bottle of Tabasco sauce. Okay. And he dropped dead. Okay. Just out of nowhere. So obviously that thing that put things on hold for a while while they found a new prosecutor. Wait, why did he drop dead? Unknown. He just dropped dead. Okay. So like I assume heart related. Yeah. Eventually, James L. Blackburn, an assistant U.S. attorney from Raleigh, was chosen. He was a soft-spoken Southern man who even Bernie Siegel admitted to liking. And this was Blackburn's first murder trial. 
a huge change from the boisterous Victor Warhide. So the trial would um, be held in 1979 in Raleigh, North Carolina, and was overseen by Judge Franklin T. Dupree Jr. Jeffrey would be represented by Bernie Siegel, and I don't know if we've really discussed Bernie Siegel very much, but he was a uh, Jewish Democrat. He had long hair. He was like, you know, a hippie type guy, whatever. And the judge was a a Southern Republican. Uh, So Bernie felt that they really needed a local Southerner to join their team to make them more relatable since it was happening in North Carolina. And I think this was probably a good move because Judge Dupree did not like Bernie Siegel. Mm. He really didn't like him. And that was clear. And everybody, every book I read, everything, everybody, whether or not they're on Jeffrey's team or not, they were like, yeah, that judge did not like Bernie. And Bernie didn't like, not like him. And Bernie was, you know, clap back to him a lot. But it was tense. Which you don't want. Not ideal. No. The judge hates your lawyer. Yeah. If you're Jeffrey, if I was Jeffrey, I'd be like, dude, like maybe you should step down. But he didn't. Anyway, so the trial did not go very well for Jeffrey. Uh, first of all, as I said, it was super clear that Judge Dupree did not like Bernie. Joe writes that Judge Dupree pretty much denied any motion that Bernie put forward. Uh, it seemed clear that Judge Dupree was biased towards the prosecution, yeah. which that is just really fucked. That's shitty. You. It shouldn't like that's you're the judge. Literally, that's your role is to be your objective. job yeah. exactly. And Bernie did not take this well. He was abrasive and rude, so it was really not a good start. Second, the new forensics were convincing, and the defense did not refute them strongly enough. The prosecution brought in a lot of experts and FBI technicians to explain the evidence, and McDonald claimed that. Okay, so McDonald claimed the pajama top was somehow pulled over his head during the fight with the intruders and that it had been held taut between his wrist as he fended off the attackers who stabbed him with the ice pick. The prosecution presented a little experiment during the trial where one of the guys held the pajama top, or it was not the pajama top, but it was like the pajama top between his wrists, presumably the way that Jeffrey would have been holding it while Blackburn stabs at it with an ice pick. During this... During this presentation, Blackburn actually accidentally injured the guy. Like, he stabbed his wrist. It seems easy enough to do. The resulting stab holes in the pajama top uh, were all, like, tear-like. Okay. While the actual top had the perfectly round holes, as I said before. So, this proved that the holes could not have been made during an attack on Jeffrey the way he said it had. Although... I think this experiment is a little bit sketchy. This is very much like the OJ glove type scenario. It's just like, that's not an experiment. Yeah. An experiment is repeated. It's done with something that's exactly the same, not similar. And like, I don't think that, like they would have to be mimicking the movements, which I don't even think Jeffrey could tell them what the movements were. So I think, I think this experiment was very convincing to the jury. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it necessarily should have been. Interesting. That's my personal take. The prosecution also noted that there were no little blue threads from the pajama top in the living room where the fight allegedly took place. But there were many, many little threads in and around Colette's body where the prosecution theorized that the pajama top had actually been stabbed. So they're inferring that the threads would come off the pajama top while it was stabbed. And so... It really doesn't make sense that there was none of them in the living room. Yeah. 
the blue threads were also found underneath Kimberly in her bed. The prosecution suggested that they got there after Jeff carried Kimberly back to her room and put her into bed. So they think that Kimberly came into the master bedroom, interrupting Jeffrey's attack on Colette. Just imagine. And that Jeffrey turned on Kimberly and killed her because of what she had witnessed. This theory, this theory is also substantiated by a number of uh, Kimberly's blood droplets found in the doorway of the master bedroom. And it also accounts for Kristen's lack of club wounds because it was that he was attacking Colette with the club, then he attacked Kimberly, and then when he... He's trying to go finish her. Yeah, I mean, they're saying that he, like, used the other weapons just to, like, um, make it look like there were multiple intruders, so he just, like, didn't bring the club when he went to Kristen's room. That's so fucked up. Yeah. The prosecution thinks that at this point, Colette was not dead, that she had got up and walked into Kristen's room to check on her. While in that room, Colette was hit again with the club. She left one blue thread from the pajama top and blood all over the top part of the bed. When she died in Kristen's room, Jeffrey wrapped her in a sheet and carried her to the master bedroom, accounting for both the bloody footprint on Kristen's floor and the bloody sheet found crumpled up in the master bedroom. That's insane. Now, the footprint was determined to have been made while whoever it was was holding something heavy like Colette, like I said. Jeffrey claimed that he had never touched the sheet, but the imprints from the pajama top were found on the blanket in Colette's blood. And we're talking about the blue pajama top. Um, The prosecution thought that the club was the first murder weapon. They believed that this piece of wood was in the master bedroom to begin with. Um, and they thought that it had been, they, they found this little section at the end of their bed that was broken. And so they think, they think that they had taken, so do you remember I said last time that there was like a big pile of wood outside their house and like, that's where they theorized that the, that it came from. So now they think that that was a piece of wood that they had been essentially just using to prop up the bed. And so that like, he just like grabbed it from there. That's so fucked up. Um, yeah, so the other three weapons came from inside the house, the kitchen specifically. They think that after killing Colette and Kimmy, Jeffrey thought up the hippie scenario and used the knives and the ice pick to kill Kristen and create more injuries so that it looked like there were multiple attackers. Right. The Esquire magazine in the living room had a smear of AB blood on it. That's uh, Kimberly's blood. The theory is that Jeff went to the living room picked up the magazine and got inspiration from what we already knew was in there. What the fuck? And he decided that Kristen also had to die and he needed to feign some injuries as well. This theory is also supported by the fact that the person who wrote the word pig on the wall used surgical gloves identical to the ones found in the home. Right. Why would hippies on drugs use surgical gloves? Yeah. In the Manson family murders, did they just do it with their fingers? Yeah. And the blood drops by the kitchen sink and the bathroom indicate that these could have been locations where Jeffrey inflicted specific injuries on himself. Yeah. So, that's their main arguments. A lot of it sounds convincing. It does sound convincing. Yeah. I agree. I think that they, like, made up a story to match the evidence. Right. Um... And they they say, like, this is what could have happened. Yeah. I just don't know that there aren't, like, seven stories where they have, like, how yeah. it could it's have happened. It's kind of random that Jeff's like, yeah, murder you. Oh, let me just check this magazine. Oh, there's an idea. 
Yeah. That part seems kind of weird. Yeah, and and that's and that's again like the okay, there was a smear of blood on the magazine. Like you're really reaching to say like he sat down and leafed through it to yeah. like check out some details. Like I think it's like either he was in a fit of rage and like ended up doing something, and then he's like, "Fuck, what do I do?" And then covered it up. I don't think he like sat there and was like, hmm, "What should I do here?" Yeah, I think that's reaching a little bit, but it's also not really the point. So Jeffrey testified, and when the defense questioned him, he did really well. He seemed very genuine. He broke down crying a lot, uh, and he spoke about his family and the events of February 17th, and there was not a dry eye in the courtroom except for the Kassabs because they were like, he's a liar. Like, they hated They were just hating him. When Blackburn cross-examined Jeffrey, he pretty much had nothing to refute the evidence. He tried his best to attack the CID and the whole investigation, but it just didn't seem strong enough. Blackburn used a very effective technique when questioning Jeffrey, and it was... It was and you were loving it? It was just... It was a job well done. He did yeah. a good job. You love a good interrogation? I do. But he... So he laid out all the forensic analysis, and as we know, the defense didn't refute it very much. So at this point, we presume the jury had taken the prosecution's version of event at face value. Now, Blackburn starts by asking Jeffrey to explain each of these pieces. So for example, like, how do you explain the lack of fibers in the living room when you said yourself you were attacked in the living room? And so Jeffrey would say something like, um, uh, I can't, like, I, I can't yeah. answer. And so then Jim comes back saying, Good. yeah. Um, and I think Jeffrey's relying on being like, I don't trust any of the evidence because such and such and such. But then so Jim comes back by saying, so if we were able to prove that there were no blue fibers in the living room, would it be reasonable to infer that the pajama top was not stabbed in the living room? And so Jeff was like pretty much forced to agree to most of these propositions. Shit. And that was very damning. Yeah. But it was like, it was smart. Um, another notable thing, Helena Stokely was back. They tracked her down and they brought her and her fiance to testify. Wow, she's a fiance? <laughs> she does. And he's a real treat. Oh, yeah. So he's like the worst. <laughs> Helena was not helpful to Jeffrey at all. She got up on the stand and claimed she had no knowledge of events. Her fiance was barefoot and dirty the entire oh, time. that looks bad. <laughs> and she was made out to be an unreliable witness. She denied everything. Bernie Siegel then wanted to enter other witnesses, about some like six to eight other witnesses who could talk about statements and confessions that Helena had made to them. But Judge Dupree wouldn't allow it. Which to me was super shady. That's shady. If she confessed to other people. And she was like constantly confessing. And he's like, he basically said it would like, he didn't know if it was okay to say in in front of the jury um because it was all hearsay and blah 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 but it's like just let them hear it and then the prosecution can refute it in whatever way they want to refute it and if it's bullshit then they'll understand that it's bullshit i mean you should let the defense call witnesses that's kind of how it works yeah and if we're saying like look she's an unreliable witness like maybe we don't want to put her on the stand fine but then let them bring in other evidence because Maybe she's an unreliable witness, but maybe she fucking did it. And if she did, like, we can't just gloss over that. That's huge. She's a legitimate suspect. Absolutely. Who, like, has on a number of occasions claimed to have been there. Right. So, yeah, that was fucked. And that's, I think, what the defense was, like, really counting on. 
being able to talk about her because yeah. they're looking to all they have to do is raise reasonable doubt and she's their reasonable doubt Easy. so to them if their forensics are if if the forensics are what they are and they're good and you don't have anything to refute them all you have is reasonable doubt yeah. and if you have enough reasonable doubt then the forensics don't matter right um so they had a pre yeah so they had a a number of witnesses who had damning things to say about Helena. Um, and we'll get into what those things are in the next part. Um, but they were not allowed to speak. Oh, no. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. Um, they set up Helena and her fiance at a hotel. I think it was a motel. Um, and in the middle of the day, there was a, an incident where he hit her and it resulted in some injuries. Um, so, and the hotel called and we're like, you, like, we don't want them here. Get them out of yeah. here. Yeah. These fuckers. Not such a chill barefoot hippie now. Yeah. So one of Bernie's assistants was sent over there and she waited with Helena while the fiance was removed. Now, allegedly at this time, Helena again confessed to the assistant. Okay. But she was, but the assistant was not permitted to testify to this. And again, the whole scenario would, will be explored a little bit more detail but i'll tell you just briefly um the assistant she asked uh she so she was there while they were removing the fiance mm -hmm. and then helena asked if she could stay with her and so she just sat in the room with her and she claims that out of nowhere helena just was like yeah i did it like so like basically kidding. confessed to her entirely and then eventually i think she was moved to another hotel and apparently the assistant was there and then like she got a call saying like don't like you got to get out of there you can't hear any more of this information like, because you can't testify and blah blah and got into this really weird mess where like she's like i don't know how they knew that that was happening yeah. so it was like kind of suspicious i i i think i i might talk about it in more detail later but it's just like yet another confession yeah. um yes so the whole trial seemed to come down to this the defense did a very good job at making Jeffrey out to be the type of guy who can never do this. They did a very good job on like his character witnesses and making him look good. They made him uh, very sympathetic um, and his test, like he did a good job testifying when they questioned him, not when the prosecution questioned him though. But it was the forensics which posed the biggest problem in the narrative and they just didn't match Jeffrey's story. Yeah. In the end, the jury came back with two counts of second-degree murder for the death of Colette and Kimberly, and one count of first-degree murder for the death of Kristen. What's the difference between first and second-degree murder? First is uh, premeditated. Okay. Second-degree is not premeditated. Okay. So they are going with the... Colette's premeditated? No. Kristen is premeditated. So they're saying they agree with the prosecution, which made the story that he like with in like a fit of rage killed Colette and then Kimberly came in and he's like fuck you do like and so he didn't pre-plan that but he decided that he had to get rid of Kristen too so he premeditatedly went in and killed her uh okay so that's what the prosecution's theory of the story was and they agreed with it and um they think that he then made up this whole story and gave himself a few minor injuries and then called the police and the rest we know. The judge sentenced McDonald to three consecutive life sentences, which that's 
you're never getting out. So after being sentenced and sent to prison, Jeffrey was unsurprisingly quite miffed. <laughs> yeah. At I this, that. Yeah, he was not happy about it, which, fair enough. At this time, he, and mind you, he, like, him and the whole defense team, like, they really did not think he would be, uh... Oh, they didn't think that he'd be convicted? No. They were, like, really, they really thought they were, they had it in the bag. So it was a huge shock to him. At this time, Joe McGinnis, the author, makes it clear in the book that leading up to and after his conviction, he believed that Jeffrey McDonald is guilty, although he does not come out and say that. He is just quite clear. Um, he also does, does not say this to Jeff and continues to correspond with him in prison. Joe, uh, Joe goes as far as to send Jeff letters saying that he couldn't believe what happened, that it was a huge miscarriage of justice, et cetera, et cetera. But meanwhile, he's just meanwhile, totally bullshitting and thinks he did it. Yeah, that seems like what happened. Okay. And he starts asking Jeff for recordings for his book. And meanwhile, too, Joe starts staying at Jeff's condo. Um, so he's making it seem like he's writing this book that's in his favor. Meanwhile, he's going behind his back and, and legally he's allowed to do this. They have a contract, which. And morally he's decided that he's guilty. Yes. So he's kind of like, fuck you, Jeff. Exactly. Which if he is guilty, I'm not super mad Yeah, if he's guilty, fuck you, Jeff. Yeah. Um, so he begins to go through Jeffrey McDonald's stuff at his condo where he's staying to finish this book. And he had with him all the court files and found a statement that Jeffrey had written back in 1970. And it's a description of the day leading up to the murders. And in it, Jeffrey mentions that he may or may not have taken a diet pill that evening. A quote from the statement reads, quote, I had lost 12 to 15 pounds in the prior three to four weeks in the process using three to five capsules of Escatrol Spansul, 15 milligrams Fuck, I should have thought about I should have written down how to say this. Dextroamphetamine speed and 7.5 milligrams of prochloroprazine. So basically he was on amphetamine, like he was on some type of stimulant? Yeah, to counteract the excitability of the speed so oh, okay, so okay. there was there was speed in it and there was this the other thing um whatever end quote um and also just i'll make it a little side note here in this uh little diary whatever he also mentions that that night he was babysitting which is a really funny way to say that you're watching your own children yeah. i just always think it's funny when dads say that they're babysitting oh, that's weird. It's, it really says something about what he thought of his family yeah and like how often you take care of your kids yeah he was babysitting. This <laughs> is like, okay. They're your children, but okay. Yeah. So McGinnis did some research on these drugs, and he found that some of the side effects of these drugs included insomnia, and in some cases, psychosis. Jeffrey mentions that he'd been taking three to five capsules, but he doesn't specify if this is per week or per day. Per week is the intended dose. Per day would have been too much, but it would make sense because he says he lost uh 
12 to 15 pounds was which is an excessive amount to lose in three to four weeks from somebody who's not like extremely over like if you're really overweight i think you can probably lose that much because you have a lot to lose but jeff was in good shape so that's a lot to lose if you're already in good shape um and also it is not recommended to take them past midday because of the possibility of insomnia um but jeffrey i think said he had them with dinner and so jeffrey had worked a 24-hour shift then he played basketball then he came home and watched his kids while colette attended a class he fell asleep on the floor for half an hour but then he was up to greet colette at home uh have a drink with her and continue going after she went to bed, finishing a show and then reading a book until approximately 2 a.m. Only to have supposed to have been back at work at 7 a.m. I mean, if you're on speed, I guess. It's gonna... That's the implication yeah. there. Okay, so this is Joe's account. He had lost 15 pounds in three weeks while taking a drug that can cause insanity. He was suffering from short-term physical exhaustion and longer-term emotional stress. His life, in fact, had been one extended period of stress, financial, intellectual, psychological, ever since Colette had become pregnant, and he had had to marry her and leave Princeton early uh, and to get through medical school while being husband to her, father to two daughters, and the glamour and titillation attendant upon becoming a Green Beret had provided only a temporary escape." Might it be too much to surmise that since early childhood, he had been suffering from the effects of a strain required to repress the boundless rage, which psychological maladjustment had caused him to feel toward child or woman, wife or mother, the female sex. And that on this night, this raw and somber military base, February, Monday night, finally with the amphetamine swelling the rage to flood tide and with Colette pregnant, and with sorry and with colette pregnant colette perhaps seeking to communicate to him some of her new insights into the personality dis, uh, structure and behavior patterns indeed possible even attempting to explain him to himself uh his defense mechanism for the first time proved insufficient and he's saying here that like she had gone to her psychology class yes. and like, was trying to like analyze him would it be too much to suggest that in that one instant, whatever is forever unknowable proximate cause might have been, a critical mass had been achieved, a fission had taken place, and that by 3.40 a.m. on February 17, 1970, the ensuing explosion of rage had destroyed not only Jeff McDonald's wife and daughters, but all that he had sought to make his life. Perhaps, yet his bloody footprint had been found on the floor, and there were blue threads on the curb outside the house and his wife already dead or so near to it that the difference was no uh, was of no important whatsoever had been stabbed in the chest with an ice pick 21 times after a blue pajama top had been laid across her and when he had sat down to write the first account of the night's events knowing that he was now considered a chief suspect his consumption of a drug which is capable of triggering psychotic rage had been the thing he'd felt necessary to mention first so that's Joe saying, like, like he kind of had it in him, but then the drug really took it over the edge. Well, I think like this is Joe's theory of how it happened, yeah. how somebody like Jeff could have done it, and he, I think he's saying maybe the pill um, set it off, yeah. which I think is a stretch. The pill, 
I think his motive is is right there. Yeah. I don't think it would have taken a pill, but it's not inconceivable. Yeah, it, it was kind of irrelevant. I just think that a lot of people, like, um, we saw this also in the Russell Williams one, like, pe- a lot of people like to come up later and be like, hey, he was on this medication. Right. And, like, yes. apparently in, like, it, like, ca- causes psychosis, but it's like... I think that was something in the Lost Feliz murder house situation as well. It's possible. And, like, you know, those things do happen. Yeah. But, but prove. it's it's a stretch, I think. Mm. But I do think I do think the motive is right. I don't think I don't think you need the diet pills. And honestly, him being doing that twenty four hour shift, like all that stuff, that's enough to make you quite loopy. And yeah, and if you have some rage in you, like I know for myself, it's not the same thing at at all. But raising puppies when you don't sleep for consecutive days, you start to get quite a short temper. Oh, not going to make me murder anybody, but yeah, you know, I know, I know what being tired is and it's, it affects you. Oh, it affects you. Absolutely. Uh, So uh, yeah, I don't even, I feel like Like if he was strung out a little bit, but I feel like he was the type of person like, cause reading through how their life was in the beginning of their marriage and their children, whatever, like he seems like the type of person who was never sleeping anyway. He was constantly at school working multiple jobs, like that man did not sleep. Um, so I don't think that was like abnormal behavior for him. Yeah. Um, but maybe like the lack of sleep caught up with him. Yeah, I don't know. But either way, I don't think his theory of these diet pills does anything really for the argument, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, okay, so. Okay, here we go down here. McGinnis also talked about some allegations against McDonald. Okay. Like later. He claimed that, so the first one was that he took a road trip with a 16-year-old girl and had sexual relations with her the whole way. What the hell? He doesn't give anything to substantiate this, um, but he says that that happened. He says that he got things to substantiate it, but, like, it's unclear to me. Whatever. Two, while on a boat trip with a different woman that he was seeing, there were two incidents which he exhibited aggressive behavior against her 10-year-old son. On one occasion, the son had been misbehaving in the apartment, and then Jeffrey brought him outside, held him off the dock by his feet. Don't like that. The second incident happened when they were on the boat, and the boy was doing something that annoyed Jeff, and he grabbed the boy and very aggressively told him that they were going back to the shore and that he was going to smash the boy's head against the boat. This event caused the woman and son to end the trip abruptly. Yeah, I would. Uh, These are kind of really random allegations yeah super random but the reader can clearly see that joe is implying that maybe jeff was the type of guy who could be violent after all mm-hmm. jeffrey did not find out that joe was implying his guilt in the book until after it was published yeah shit so he's That's not, not, fun. <laughs> not happy about that this guy's been like getting into his confidence he's been telling him all this information he's been staying in this apartment and then he's like yeah i thought you were guilty yeah and i think he found this out like during an interview he was doing. Like he heard Joe doing an interview about the book? No, like Jeff was being interviewed and people started asking him about the book and he's like, oh, true. And it's crazy because, I don't know if I mentioned this, but like Joe was a, like basically a part of the defense team. He was... Um, he was really involved. He like, when... So when the trial was happening, Jeff and the lawyers were staying on a university campus nearby i forget what university um and so like 
Joe became basically like one of Jeff's best friends. They would like go running together and hang out yeah, together. He basically yeah. was like part of the team who were like, and they were like, you know, isolated themselves. Like he was one of Jeffrey's best friends. So, I wonder when he decided he was guilty. Like, was it the whole time that he thought he was guilty or at a certain point he switched? That's what's unclear. So he claims that he went in with like, um, like open-minded open-minded basically like as if he were a jury member and that he was convinced of the guilt at some point but i don't think he specified at one point right and the thing is he i mean he has a motive like joe has the motive of wanting to sell this like sensational book but at the same time like he spent so much time with jeff so the fact that he got convinced of his guilt is a little bit well yeah that says doesn't look great i agree yeah so on November 27th, 1979, McDonald's lawyer filed a brief to the United States Court of Appeals for the uh, Fourth Circuit. They cited two main points, one being that Judge Dupree did not allow witnesses to testify as to what Helena Sto- Stokely had said. And second, Jeffrey's Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial uh, was uh, like he didn't get it. It was mostly based on the second argument that the count voted two to one in favor of Jeffrey McDonald. They felt that the two-year time between the submission of the CID report in 1972 and the grand jury hearing in 1974 was too long. Also, the fact that everything took so long may have contributed to Helena Stokely's memory loss. Yeah, I guess. Which, that's reasonable. That and the drugs. Yeah, but it's like, you can never know, right? You can't know what she was like in... uh, 1972 versus 1979 when the trial actually occurred so jeffrey was released from prison while he was out he and his girlfriend candy had stayed uh while he was out he like hung out with his girlfriend candy who had stayed with him through his trial and conviction um but he ended up breaking up with her and he found a new girl uh 20 year old randy lee they got engaged and moved in together very quickly. So when Jeff Jeff got together with Candy when she was 20 during his trial, then he went to prison, got out. Now she's like 24 or something. And then he's like, no, not you. Then so she was still just like waiting for him while he was in jail? The whole time. And then he got with a girl, another girl who was 20. So he just went back to like the other girl's original age. And Jeffrey's like pretty old at this point. So it was like kind of shady. How old is he? <sighs> 1979. So in... It happened in 1970, and in 1970, he was 26. So now he's... 35? 34? Somebody do the math there. Are you doing the math? 35. He's 35. That's the math? I think so. All right. I'm trusting you there. 19, yeah. 19, 30. Yeah, so he's 35, which I don't know what difference. Also, can you quickly explain to me, he was in jail and he got out of jail? He was just being in jail... He got out on an appeal. Appeal, okay. Yeah, so that was the, it was the, um, it was the fact that he didn't get a speedy enough trial. Yeah, it was the right to the speedy trial. Um, they also argued that, that um, it wasn't fair that the judge didn't allow the, which is I agree. Which to me is the more convincing I agree, argument. 100%. Also, love how like multiple women are just willing to date him. So many women. Yeah, like this guy might have currently his wife and kids. he has a girlfriend. I think they might be married. He has potentially brutally killed his wife and kids, but still on a date. People just love that shit. It's yeah, so it's weird. True. I 
that's a whole, I you know that would be a whole good episode just like the psychology okay. behind that. Yeah. We should do one on that. I wonder if it's more that like people are convinced of their innocence and like are into that or if it's like you think that he did it. Yeah. Because there's a difference. Like, there's a lot of women who are into Chris Watts, and like, right. he for sure did it. Anyway. Oh, goodness. So, it was around this time that Helena Stokely began confessing again, and this time she was giving names. Who was she confessing to? Just like friends and family? To anyone who would listen. She also like did an interview. What I think it was for hell? like 60 minutes or something where she got up on TV and went through everything. And we'll get to that because it comes into play. That's crazy. She had been approached in a JCPenney by Ted Gunderson, a private detective, and a female psychic, and they convinced her to start talking again. Apparently, they had been promising her a lot of things like movie deals and housing and help from McDonald's friends and family. This was in May, and by October, she began began giving names, and she named five friends. Bruce Fowler, Greg Mitchell, Don Harris, Dwight Smith, and Alan Maserol. Bernie Siegel used to justify Jeffrey's release and label the murder as a Manson-like cult crime. So basically, Jeffrey's out at this point, and Bernie's, like, she's confessing, and Bernie's like, see, this was like a Manson cult crime, and like, whatever. Kind of seems like it. One of these guys, Bruce Fowler, was dead, and the rest seemed to have alibis or had been previously investigated and eliminated as suspects. This was glossed over pretty quickly in Fatal Vision, and we will get to some of these people in much more detail in the next part. Unfortunately in for Jeffrey. In Wilderness of Airs, right? Pardon me? In Wilderness of Airs. Yes. In and, Errol and just like other research. Okay. Um, so, unfortunately for Jeffrey, on March 31st, 1982, the U.S. Supreme Court voted 6-3 to three that Jeffrey's right to a speedy trial had not been violated since he hadn't been in prison or even charged during those two years. Mm-hmm. And since the crimes were so heinous, they wow. marched Jeffrey right back to prison he and Randy Lee stayed together, and Jeffrey vowed to continue fighting. He fired Bernie Siegel and hired a new guy. But soon after his imprisonment, Randy Lee ended the engagement. Oh, Very sad. It was around this time that Helena Stokely was discovered dead. Stokely, sorry. Was discovered dead in her apartment next to her very dehydrated seven-month-old baby. Wow. Yeah. And I think I mentioned that, that she died I knew in the that last she episode. Had, yeah, or, I knew that she had died. So what did she die from? Do we know? It was, I believe it was like a kidney failure. Like from drug drug Yeah, yeah. It was it was due to her lifestyle. Yeah. Um it appeared that she had pneumonia and oh, it was a result of cirrhosis of the liver and hepatitis. Not kidney, sorry. But yeah, her seven month old baby was there and like super dehydrated. That is so sad. She probably should not have had a baby, to be honest. A lot of people should not have babies. But they do. Her so. included. So that's where I'm going to end it for this episode in terms of the information. But I will say that – so I have just given you basically the point of view of Fatal Vision. Yep. So there's a lot of things that I've presented in a w- in the way that they would have presented it that I know that there is arguments for that I left out purposely in order to leave them for the next episode. Yep. Um, so just keep that in mind where we are for now. Um, there's going to be a whole different perspective. Cause like yeah. I've said, I've read the Errol Morris book and it presents things in an extremely different way. Yeah. And it's pretty like the Errol Morris book is pretty highly criticized. Yeah. 
Um, I and mean, I based will on get this to it. already, it kind of seems like a lot of like a lot of the Errol Moore stuff is essentially assuming Jeffrey's innocence. Like the whole book, there's not one part of the book that really implicates him. Yeah, yeah, he goes really strongly in favor of yeah. of because I, I think the argument can be made that he didn't get a fair trial, that he deserves a new trial. That is fair. And that the defense couldn't call witnesses. That's fair. Yeah. Um. But I think Errol Morris's real argument is that he's innocent. Yeah. It seems to be. Yeah. And when we'll get when we get into it, you'll see that there's um. It's a lot about Helena, like, yes. and I think that's the strongest part. And I think it's also um. I think Fatal Vision took a lot of the forensic evidence at face value where I think that I think that if it came to court nowadays or if like we went over all of it nowadays I think we could poke a lot more holes in the physical evidence um if we if if somebody wanted to um but if he is guilty like it is such a Chris Watts situation. It's like the exact same. He killed his wife, his two daughters, and she was pregnant with a son. It's the exact same thing. That is similar. And it's essentially with the motive of escaping from being tied down. Yeah. Yeah. And and like Chris Watts, I don't I don't know what he is, but it just like apparently he seemed like a really nice guy, really family oriented guy. Like he wasn't like successful the way that Jeffrey McDonald was. But I just see so many similarities. And it's just to me, it's so unfortunate how much they fucked up the crime scene. Yeah. Cause that's like, you guys, like they just destroyed it. They really did. They really didn't know what they were doing. And it's like yeah. we could have we could have figured this out and like just known who it was. Moved on. Yeah. And this it would have been done. And the amount of lives that have been ruined. Um, Colette's brother has a website, like going through all of it. And you could tell it's super old. It's like a really old, shitty website. But like he goes and he goes through this book page by page and oh. refutes everything. So Colette's brother thinks that Jeffrey's guilty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think most people do. Interesting. I mean, he's currently in jail. So he very recently, I think he's in his seventies now, and he very recently requested to get out of jail because I don't, I think he's got yeah, some COVID. sort of, he has some sort of illness, I think, yeah. and yeah, due to COVID, everyone's trying to get out because of COVID. Right, right. Um, Many people have gotten out because of COVID. Yeah. Well, one thing I remember reading about Jeff was him saying, "If it would take me admitting guilt, then I'll never get out of jail." Like he basically said, he'd rather rot in jail than say he's guilty. Yeah. Whether or not he's innocent or not, that's essentially his decision. And I think that's a very innocent person mindset. But you could also – maybe he knows that. So well, Damien Eccles took the plea deal. Yeah, but he uh, – yes, but uh, what's his name? The other one didn't want to. Oh. They had to try to convince him because he was like, I don't want to do an Alfred plea because I'm not guilty. Yeah. But – So as of right now, do we think Jeff did it? I'm definitely leaning more towards that. Oh, it's yeah. I just if we had heard more from Helena and had the statements that she made and all that stuff. I have them. I know them. Um, there's another thing too. One of the investigators. So another thing that wasn't mentioned. It was very barely mentioned, but there was a suitcase okay. in the room that was open and packed, and so 
the way that they're claiming they found it was like there's like blood splatter and stuff everywhere, but the suitcase was on top of it, um, implying that it was opened after the blood. It's like he was after the attack. He was planning to pack up a suitcase and just fuck right off. Yes. But they're so they're alleging that excuse me, he packed up a suitcase and was ready to go and then was like so basically he killed the wife and daughter, one daughter or two, we don't know. I think probably just the one at that point. Thought, oh fuck, I gotta get out of here. But then decided, wait, let me stage this and make it look like a bunch of murderers came in and killed and everybody. And you just didn't think to put the suitcase away? I mean, that would make sense for why there's no blood over top of it. Yeah. But, and also, I would have to think, if I was in his position and I killed my whole family, my mind would not be thinking super clearly. So I think it would make sense that he just like abandoned it and like just didn't think much of it. But I don't I also don't think that got touched on very much. It was like kind of side mentioned, but like yeah, it's pretty it's like pretty suspicious. It is suspicious. Yeah. I I mean there's no way he was in his right mind after a 24-hour shift, all that stuff, only like a little bit of sleep. He simply could not have been in his right mind and he was probably delirious and everything he was doing was like not logically thought out. But I want to hear the rest before I give – I mean, my opinion means nothing, but I will wait to hear the last part. Um, Your opinion means a lot to this podcast. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I don't – like, personally, I haven't even made my mind up. It's so hard to know. This and is a hard one to know. It really is. And it's the, it's the kind of thing that you'll never know. Yeah, probably never. No, because there's no way. How would they – unless they – unless some new forensics come out. Yeah. Like or that fucking – if they ever find that piece of skin. Fucking piece of skin. You could have known. And even that, though, like, she could have scratched Jeffrey accidentally during the whole kerfuffle. Because we just cannot rely on his account. Okay, it, if we think – if we if we just give, give to him that uh, he is innocent and, and that three people came in. Yeah. If that did happen. It's still possible that she just scratched him. Yes. And it's just we can't count on anybody's account from that scenario because who's going to remember exactly what happened correctly in a situation like that? Nobody. This is just such a like mind twisting case. I know. What happened? I have been knee deep in this for months basically. Reading all these books and there's not – so I read these two books and then there's also – a documentary series, which is not very highly rated, but I enjoyed it. It was like a six-episode miniseries called The Wilderness of Air uh-huh. that, that Aaron Morris is in, but he doesn't direct it. Okay. But it has – I don't know if he produced it. I, for, I, I have to look into that, and I'll mention it in the next episode and give you all the details. But, like, it's very Aaron Morris-y. Yeah, it's um, And it's like – I really enjoyed it. But I don't want to give it away, but, yeah, like, it kind of refutes it. things about this book. Mm, okay, so it's okay, like, we'll save it. Guilty, not guilty. Then there's another guilty. I've just been up and down and back and forth on this a lot. Yeah, seriously. Me too. Even just today. And there's almost like too much information. Yeah. Yeah. So. There's too many possibilities. Okay, well, we want to know for everybody listening and watching, what do you guys think? Before we we hear the final part on Wilderness of Airs. What do you guys think? Did he do it? Did yeah. Did so, do it? Yeah. I, I'm curious to see what people think at this point and then after, like, if any minds change. Yeah. So that's that episode. Hope you enjoyed. 
And please speak with us on Instagram, on YouTube. Check us out at Who's Knocking Podcast on Instagram. And Twitter. And Twitter. Actually, guys, I'm just going to tell you right now, our Twitter is actually Who's Knocking Pod. Just found that out. <laughs> so we've been saying it wrong the whole time. That down. We also haven't really put anything up there yet, but maybe we'll get to it. Um, email us hello at whosknockingpodcast.com and just, you know, stay safe. Rate and review. There. Stay safe. Because you never know who's knocking. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Lost Line Media. Artwork by August Digital. Music by Matthew Cook.